Hello! Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello, hello. With Elizabeth Spires of here, Slate and New York Times and places like that. Hello. We are going to talk about Bridgewater this week, the world's biggest hedge fund and its founder, Ray Dalio, and the book that has been written about it called The Fund and all of the crazy that has been going on at that fund and whether and how it works. We are going to talk about the actor strike, which is now over. Well done, studios and actors, for coming to agreement on that. We are going to talk about WeWork, which is now in bankruptcy. We have even more Bridgewater in the Slate Plus. We will learn about dog walking services in the numbers round. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Okay, so I think we should start by talking about this amazing new book by Rob Copeland, where he does all of this insane reporting about what goes on inside Bridgewater, which certainly used to be, and I think probably still is, the biggest hedge fund in the world. And Emily, you are kind of up to speed on Bridgewater, but I feel there's someone better to talk about the book. Are you asking me something, Felix? What I'm asking you is, who is the best person to talk about this book? Well, (laughs) Rob is the best person to talk about the book because Rob wrote the book. Okay, so let's do a quick (laughs) woo-woo-woo sound and then guess who's here. Hi, Rob. Oh Oh my gosh, it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Rob Copeland is here in the Slate Money virtual studio. Welcome. This reminds me of a Broadway show where you you enter in very dramatically halfway through the first act, you get the big number. And then you don't show up again. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to come in with a woo-woo sound. You're going to talk about Bridgewater. And then you're going to exit stage left. And then when there's a stage call at the end of the show, you're not even going to be there because you'll have gone home. You'll be at like Sardi's at that point. I'll be under the bar at Sardi's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, introduce yourself. You are the author of The Fund, this big new book about Bridgewater. And you also have a day job at the New York Times. Exactly. I am the author of The Fund, Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates, and The Unraveling of a Wall Street Legend. And I'm also a business reporter for The New York Times. I've been at The Times for about a year, and I was at The Wall Street Journal, you know, almost a decade before then. And your beat, not to put too fine a point on it, at The Journal and at The Times, a large chunk of it has been Bridgewater. This has not just been a book writing thing. This has been a long-standing sort of great white whale for you. I've been writing about Bridgewater for close to 10 years. Wow. At the Journal and at the Times, I sort of have a reputation for writing gnarly, interesting stories about billionaires. And I don't think there's a gnarlier, is that a word, or more interesting billionaire than Ray Dalio, the founder of the world's biggest hedge fund. So the word unraveling is right there in the title, but it, it, it is still to this day the world's biggest hedge fund. Like the hedge fund has not unraveled. Am I right about that? Well, the book's been out for a few days, so. Uh, <laughs> are, we, are we expecting any unraveling anytime soon in the wake of the publication of this book? Well, I'd, I'd rather not get sued by predicting anything. What I will say is it, it unravels the backstory that he's told so many times and become world famous for in TED Talks and YouTube videos and national television interviews. And there, there really are two versions of Ray Dalio. There's the one who appeared on your television screen for all those years. And there's the one behind the scenes at Bridgewater Associates and what he's actually like. 
So yeah, I, I remember watching a video where he was mentoring Diddy and they were hanging out and being very pally. And he seems like a friendly chap. And that presumably is the real Ray. Well, I did actually reach out to Diddy's representatives to ask if there was any further details about the mentorship, and they did not get back to me. But what I will say is he has been exceptional, and so has Bridgewater, at, at presenting this version of Ray Dalio as this quote-unquote principled person. But for many years behind closed doors at Bridgewater, he's acted, frankly, in a manic way. And as the, as the book points out, it's actually been getting worse and worse as time has gone on. He's a bully. I think we have to sort of back up and explain for listeners who are not super familiar with Dalio what his mystique is about and what his book is about, The Principles. He, he has a whole kind of what he refers to as a system for you know running your life and your workplace and so on. And part of what your book does so well is you sort of hold up what's actually happening in Dalio's life and workplace against what he purports to believe. And how would you characterize that? How would you characterize the way that he advises people around him to conduct themselves? So Ray's become world famous as the author of this book, which is called Principles, Life and Work. And it offers you nothing short of a roadmap for how to achieve success in, as the title suggests, life and work. And it comes down to what he calls principles or rules that are essentially how to fight your suboptimal instincts and lean into discomfort. You know, one of his favorite principles is pain plus reflection equals progress. And he's really become incredibly famous for being someone who has allegedly conquered this side of his brain, this emotional side of his brain to be able to achieve incredible success. But (laughs) in reality, and what your book is, I mean, it's so eminently readable for is none of that holds up when you look at what's going on inside Bridgewater, Ray Dalio comes across as a really petty bully who cannot be criticized. They have to rejigger the algorithm for the principles so that Ray Dalio is always on top. (laughs) It's kind of like what Elon Musk did at Twitter to surface his tweets the most. It feels like that. It's that on steroids. Absolutely. (laughs) What I would say is if you were someone who spent all of your time acting in a very unprincipled manner, Probably the the best thing you could do is convince the world that actually you were number one top dog, Mr. Principles. And that's that's really what's been going on here for a number of years. There's so many dimensions to this story. But the thing that I, I like to tell people is even the word principles, the idea that he has principles is a misnomer. There is no fixed set of principles. They have been moving and evolving over time. He's been weaponizing them and metastasizing them. He gets rid of them when they don't work for him or when someone tries to you know, cite them in an inconvenient way for him. He invents new ones at, at any moment. There was at one point about 375 principles. And as someone in the book says, the Bible has 10. <laughs> and you have 375, right? It's a lot. So, okay. So the idea behind the Dalio pitch is that the principles are what created this massive fortune made him billions of dollars, made Bridgewater the biggest hedge fund in the world and successful on any sort of objective metric in terms of it still managed to persuade 160 130 billion dollars worth of LPs to give it their money at two and 20 or whatever he judges. So if that's not true, if this is just some sort of ex post facto way of Ray Dalio 
reinventing himself as a thought leader, then the obvious next question is, so what is it that was that accounts for Bridgewater's success? And given that Ray Dalio is the founder of Bridgewater, was there something that wasn't the principles that he did that caused Bridgewater to be so successful? Well, let's give Ray a lot of credit here. He is a master storyteller. And he was a master storyteller for years before anyone in public really had heard of his name. Ray starts Bridgewater in the 1970s, and he doesn't start even talking about these things called principles until the mid-2000s. So he's already a billionaire by that. So what the principles attempt to do with this whole persona he's created for himself do is is they retrofit. and, And they say, because I'm so successful, it must have been because of X, Y, Z. And that's been a really powerful piece of logic for him. And it's what's gotten him all of all of this attention. Now, the absolutely wild thing is that Ray Dalio, you know, already a billionaire by the time he starts talking about these, the more he starts talking about the principles, the worse Bridgewater's investments continue to perform. So it's this amazing little two-step, which is he keeps getting more famous, but Bridgewater, the hedge fund, keeps performing relatively worse and worse. And that's been, as a journalist, an interesting dynamic to watch. What kind of a hedge fund is Bridgewater? Ray Dalio is famous for putting YouTube videos out where he seeks to explain the way that the global economy works. And so in light of those YouTube videos, I kind of get the impression that the in terms of the style of fund is that he's looking with a gimlet eye at the entire global economy and sort of making predictions about which countries and currencies and commodities and markets are going to do well and which are going to do badly. And he's going to go long sum and short the other. And it's he's making big economic bets rather than, say, doing high-frequency trading or you know doing activist investing in stocks or anything like that. Is that broadly true? He'd love that description you just gave of him, definitely. <laughs> that is, Bridgewater is a, is a macro hedge fund, meaning it predicts big economic trends and changes. And Ray, for decades, has done a ton of media where he will opine on pretty much any economic topic. And the important thing about this argument is it it suggests that Bridgewater is a place that is open-minded and that can, you know, make predictions about anything on earth. Now, it's certainly not the only macro hedge fund, but it's by far the largest, the most successful, and probably the most well-known. This raises a a really interesting tension, which I've seen at other hedge funds, which is that there are two equally important things that any hedge fund manager has to do. One is invest the money, and the other is sell the hedge fund and raise money and persuade investors to give you their money to invest on their behalf. And it turns out that talking about your investments and talking about your positions and talking about how you see the world and talking about your predictions for where the world is going is in many, many cases, one of the most effective ways of raising money. Even though that's really a marketing function rather than an investing function, people love the idea that they're getting a window into the investing function. And famously, Anthony Scaramucci was the guy who really perfected this, right? He never made investment decisions, really, but he would go out on TV and play a hedge fund manager on TV and talk about what he thought was going up and going down. And people would give his fund of funds money because he sounded like he talked like he knew what he was talking about. And then there was this good performance. And people were like, well, 
there has to be some connection between what you're talking about on TV and the performance, even though there really wasn't. So does it make sense to think about Ray Dalio's, you know, YouTube videos and prognostications on the economy? And you do a really good job of going through them all and saying, well, he always seems to be really bearish. Is it sensible to think about all of that as basically his marketing of the fund positioning himself as someone very intelligent about the economy that people want to give money to rather than as being any kind of a window into how Bridgewater invests? Well, my answer is yes and yes and yes. And by the way, Anthony Scaramucci <laughs> is one of my favorite figures because Anthony Scaramucci didn't even run a hedge fund. He did very briefly run a hedge fund you've never heard of, but for he became famous for not making any investment decisions himself. Um, but people kept calling him a hedge fund manager. So that's just a wonderful side note in Wall Street for me. <laughs> now, one of the big reveals for me in the years that I spent talking to people and researching this book is that Ray gets a lot of credit for predicting the 2008 financial crisis. But in actuality, if you go back and you do what I recommend that no one on earth does because I already did it, which is you read the thousands of media interviews that he's given since the 1970s in which he claims, oh, gosh, I don't really like talking about myself, but if you're asking me to. I guess I will. This man has been predicting economic doom and gloom pretty much uninterrupted for his entire career. And everything comes in cycles. And every time there is a major downturn, he is able to accurately say, I saw it coming. But what he doesn't talk about is all the time he predicts recessions that never came. And that's an incredibly powerful marketing push. Because if you're someone with a lot of money and you don't know where to invest it, you don't necessarily need to invest with someone who's taking the biggest swing, someone who says they're going to make you more money. What you want is the guy who says, oh my gosh, there's danger. I'll help protect you. And that has helped make Bridgewater the world's biggest hedge fund. And it's helped make Ray Dalio one of the richest men on Wall Street and beyond. And you say that insight came to Ray Dalio because he, he married into Vanderbilt wealth, but it was in decline. And he realized that rich people just want to hold on to their, their money and they don't want to take big risks. And that was like his big insight, which I- That was definitely that. an insight of his. And it's so interesting. He, did, he marries into the Vanderbilt Whitney family and then never talks about it. He still talks about his rags to riches tale. And of course. to my knowledge- well, hasn't ever spoken about, you know, his wife's family wealth. And that's no shot on her, by the way, the book, this isn't a, a personal thing between mm -hmm. me and Ray and, or God forbid his wife, but you know, he had huge advantages that he married into. Well, isn't this part of the personal brand that he's built around himself? I mean, Felix is talking about the story, the economic story that Dalio tells, but I think at this point, just as important, you know, his, his book, the principles is a big bestseller, even outside of finance circles. Uh, he seems to be positioning himself as a kind of uh, high-end, more cerebral Tony Robbins. And what's astonishing about your book is that you get so much into how that culture that he built around that really filtered into the everyday operation of Bridgewater and all the just really strange stuff that happened there. I've always thought of it as kind of a cult, but then you have these antidotes where you have employees who are rating each other on a dot system and they seem to be spending more time adjudicating, you know, petty conflicts than worrying about the fund or the investments or anything like that. You have Dalio nitpicking, you know, whether the peas in the cafeteria were wrinkled or not. Can you just give us some examples that probably surprised you in the reporting of the book? Sure. And and what you're talking about there is, by the way, over the last 15, 20 years, there's been the whole apparatus inside Bridgewater 
where you rate each other and you basically encourage to say that there's no such thing as a, as a small problem. And this is sort of darkly funny. It's darkly comic in parts of the book. For instance, Bridgewater, like many firms, has buses for their employees to commute in. And the, the bus drivers were getting rated sometimes during the same ride for the bus being too hot or too cold. So the bus drivers are just there. They're damned if they do, damned if they don't. You know, if there's not a Diet Coke left in the refrigerator, the facilities people are getting rated down because they're out of Diet Coke. The parking passes are the wrong size. The There's pee on the floor of the bathroom. All these, this is my favorite one. A woman literally gets fired after she doesn't bring in bagels after promising to bring them in on a particular day and her employees get together and say, we can't trust you because you didn't bring in the bagels. Now this is fun. (laughs) Let's be honest. Like this is, there aren't a lot of financial firms like this, but it's also, (laughs) these are real people. You know, this is you, this is a woman who really did lose her job over this. So it's both been very fun to talk about and to write, but it's also been a little sad for me too. So Rob, there are two contrasts I'd like to put to you here because this just feels incredibly weird and improbable to me on a couple of different levels. One level is that someone who's permanently bearish could end up doing so well in terms of both performance, you know, suddenly in the early years and also accumulating money. The big contrast there, I think, would be Bill Gross at PIMCO, who raised even more money on an absolute basis um, by basically just being more bullish than everyone through a period where the global economy surprised everyone in terms of bullishness and the interest rates surprised everyone by continuing to come down when everyone thought, you know, on a sort of, you know, bearish level, they wouldn't. And his big structural bullishness kind of explains how he became such a giant in the world of money management. And then the other thing is, Later on, uh, early next year, we're going to talk to to Carrie Sun, who worked at Tiger Global, which is another like hot bullish hedge fund. But one of the big messages of her book is that you know that fund is incredibly efficient, and everyone is amazingly overworked and overstretched. And there's this thing, and I've seen this at many hedge funds where they kind of pride themselves on efficiency and everyone doing three jobs at once and to the point at which they won't even have an HR department because they're like, we don't need that. And the contrast with, again, with Bridgewater is that this is a company with like 1,600 employees and no one has a clue what like 1,400 of them are doing. In terms of the core basis of what a hedge fund does, which is either investing money or raising money, like most of the employees at Bridgewater do neither of those things and there are points in the book where you have various outside managers like larry culp or you know john rubenstein being brought in and they're like well we don't need half of these employees because they don't actually do anything for the hedge fund and in both of those respects one like how do you outperform if you're structurally bearish in a market that was up and to the right for most of the period of the book and two what how and why do you let your fund grow when the vast majority, like internally, when the vast majority of hedge fund managers seem to pride themselves on being really lean and sleek and efficient? So Bridgewater and Dalio have threatened me and my publisher with a multi-billion dollar lawsuit. So I can be sort of annoyingly careful about what I say, but I'm not, I'm perfectly comfortable saying this. There's nothing efficient about the operations of Bridgewater Associates. The amount of work being done 
on things that have nothing to do with investing is shocking, period, full stop. Now, so far as the idea that Bridgewater has outperformed, it is true that since inception, the fund, and which includes years in which the fund was very small, if you look at it on a percentage basis, it, the fund has outperformed a lot of other hedge funds. However, over the past 10 or so years, it has done very poorly compared to other hedge funds. And I don't think it's a coincidence that coincides with the period in which all of these other wild things were happening, in which Ray became sort of obsessed with growing the, the principles and investigating everything and investigating everyone for everything under the sun. Now, I told you earlier there were two versions of Ray Dalio. There was the one you see in TED Talks, and there's the one behind closed doors. There's also two versions of Bridgewater's investing. And a big reveal for me was no matter what Ray goes on CNBC and says, or whatever economic doom and gloom he's pitching today, you know, he's literally called for a civil war uh, a few weeks ago. That doesn't really have much of an impact on Bridgewater's actual investing. The Ray Dalio you see on TV, the predictions that he makes, that's a marketing move and a highly effective one. So when, when I'm watching CNBC and I'm seeing Ray, the Ray Dalio's, Jamie Dimon's, whoever else is on there, none of that is real. Is that a big takeaway from your book? It was. It is kind of for me. I mean, all that stuff is just noise, right? It is breathlessly covered by um, business media, but these quotes from these dudes, like they're basically meaningless. Ray, Ray Dalio, I mean, Jamie Dimon is another good example of someone who regularly comes out and says things which are opposite to what his economists are saying at J.P. Mm-hmm. Morgan. And he yeah. has a whole big staff of economists. And he's like, well, I have economists, but I also have a gut. And when I go on TV, I'm just going to speak from my gut. And basically, uh, J.P. JP Morgan is big enough and uh, it's much bigger than Bridgewater. And they can happily operate regardless of what Jamie Dimon says on the telly. I, I feel like Bridgewater, from what Rob, you're saying, it sounds a little bit like that, that mostly in terms of the investment decisions that Bridgewater makes, they just blithely keep on doing whatever they're doing and don't really listen to Dario. That's true. And actually, I, I would disagree with you, Felix. I think that Jamie Dimon actually is an okay example. So Emily, cheers on that. The, <laughs> uh, I, I've met Jamie Dimon a few times. We're not personal friends. Obviously, I'm a reporter for the New York Times. He's not speaking to me because he actually cares about my personal opinion, nor should he. But when you when you meet these very famous investors and business leaders in person, you have to remember that they're not speaking to you. They're speaking to uh, the audience that they think that you represent. So when you're watching CNBC and you see Ray Dalio, you need to remember he's looking at a camera. And that's been a big reveal for me. And in fairness to Ray, that's that's true of Bill Gross too. You know, Pimco. It's true of Jamie Dimon. I doubt there's anyone on CNBC who's saying what's really in their heart, except maybe the anchors, I guess. Right. And so the reason they're on there is to just get people to invest money in their funds. Basically, it's just marketing. Absolutely, and it positions them as as a thought leader. You know, it's not that you're going to watch CNBC and pick up the phone and invest in Bridgewater Associates or buy JP Morgan stock or open, but it's part of this larger narrative that we all participate in. And it it's something we should all be conscious of. Right. It's just like brand awareness, basically. Exactly. It's, but it's brand awareness wrapped in this patina of, hey, we're here to help you. I don't, I'm trying to help you invest your money. Rob Copeland, that was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. That was so much fun. Okay, Rob has been 
yanked off stage by a whopping great hook, never to return, at least until the sleepless. <laughs> so, but Emily, we have some big actual financial, well, a couple of big pieces of financial news this week, but you're the union person. Yeah. Big union deal with the actors. Yes, the actor strike is finally over after 118 days and about two months longer than the writer's strike. They announced this week they finally had reached a deal. We don't know a lot about the deal we're talking on Friday, so we don't know a ton about the deal yet. Um, Boost minimum pay, increase residual payments for online streaming, la, 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 some kind of a deal on AI. Creates residual payments for online streaming, which was a big thing. Like These things never really existed before, and now they finally agreed for at least some of the most successful shows. And as you say, we don't know the mm-hmm. details. These things will exist. Netflix famously has been incredibly resistant to the idea that it would ever pay any royalties to anyone yeah. ever. Yeah. Um, and so that's a big change. And then the other big change, of course, is AI. And Henry Farrell has a really interesting take on this, which is that often you need oppositional fights like this, like a strike. Mm-hmm. in order to come to some kind of an agreement on how something like AI should be used. If you just allow a company like OpenAI to come out and say, we want to listen to our stakeholders, and then we will take their you know cognition under advisement, and, and we will try and work out what the best way to implement AI in a harmless and democratic way is, like that is not actually democracy. Demo- the way that democracy works in practice is you have big fights, and you have winners, and you have losers. And it looks like this is the first real sort of labor action, whereas AI w- was central, and they have come to some kind of an agreement. And by all accounts, you know, the studios did not get the kind of rights to use AI access that they had had here on too. Yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. I think the reason, one reason it took so long is the studios didn't realize how much leverage and bargaining power the actors had or the writers, I mean, before them. So there was come to Jesus kind of thing for the studios just realizing, oh, we can't just bulldoze our way through this. And I think that's why a lot of these negotiations and strikes have been taking a long time, you know, this year. It's just because the balance of power has really truly shifted and it's t- it took some time for the studios to kind of wake up to that. And we really don't know yet that much about these AI deals, right? Or these Correct. AI provisions. We, but we, yeah, we, we know they exist, which is, but beyond that, we don't know a lot about them. Right. Yeah, I but, think we, but I, we, we know what the worst case scenario is that the members are worried about, which is that they do one day of taping and then uh, the studios can do whatever they want with their images indefinitely. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, I think it's really true though. What I guess you're saying, Henry, Farrell said, <laughs> which is that like changes in in laws and really comes from that tension. No one's going to fix something if no one's complaining that it's broken or has a fight about it or has done something really egregious. There's no regulations or laws that just come up because people are doing things out of the goodness of their heart. So it's interesting that of all places where AI regulation and strictures are happening. It's in union contracts. Who would have thought that? You know, it just seems so anachronistic. Unions versus artificial intelligence. Right. To have it come out of AI is like, what? Well, until the robots start unionizing, then, you know. Yeah, exactly. One of the other interesting wrinkles to this was that there was a super interesting thing at the very end. The production side, the, the studios, gave an ultimatum to the union and said 
we have a deal. You have until 8 p.m. to accept this deal. And then the union wound up saying yes, because there was this like deadline. And I was like, wait, what? This doesn't make any sense. Like the union can say yes whenever they want. But it turns out that the studios were super into just saying like, we need to do this now because it's going to take us basically the rest of the year between Thanksgiving and the holidays and all of that kind of stuff to ramp up. We want to come out of the gates in the new year, early 2024, be shooting and have all of our production schedules working for 2024 so that we can make our big you know summer movie season and, and all of that kind of thing and basically what they were saying to the actors was if you let this go on even another week that could screw up all of 2024 that's going to hurt all of your income for 2024 and of course the income of all of the you know support staff in hollywood all of the people who make sets and do production accounting and all of these other people who've been out of work for the past 118 days and the unions sort of do care about those folks. But there was this weird sort of discontinuity that going on strike for an extra week wouldn't just mean losing an extra, another week of income. It could mean losing like another eight months of income. And then at that point, they were like, okay, it's not worth it. Yeah. And, and you believe the studios here. Well, I think that I, it's not so much that I believe the studios, but I think the unions the believe the studios. Yeah. yeah. I think particularly for TV production, these things work in cycles and, you know, you sell ads against them and things like that. And it would be very difficult to completely reconstruct their process when it involves so many players that are not just the studios and uh, union members. It's been fascinating to see what's happened at the movie theaters <laughs> in the wake of this strike. There's so many old movies you can go see right now. It's a, it's an interesting and go, weird time. Go see movie, go see old movies in movie theaters. Yeah. People, this is something that I can't remember the last time I saw an old movie in a movie theater and didn't love it. And I, yeah. you know, I remember not too long ago I went to see like women from like 1934 or something, and it was so good. And if you mm -hmm. get the opportunity to see old movies in movie theaters especially if it's The Princess Ride, go and do it. It's so good in theaters. We took the eight-year-old to uh, see E.T. in an IMAX theater not too long oh, ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> we should also talk about WeWork. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the story that keeps on giving, but it is a kind of headline. It did officially file for bankruptcy. It has gone through a series of cap structure restructurings over the years, you know, um, various different investors have put new money in, restructured debt, people have taken losses. And this is on one level, just another one of those restructurings, but it comes with the word bankruptcy, which has, you know, a lot of salience. And it does feel like the end, the final end to a story that we have loved to talk about on this show many times in the past, even though we all know in our hearts that, you know, we are still going to be walking around cities with lots of WeWorks in them and people are still going to work in WeWorks and the brand is going to exist. And, you know, it is not the end of the company or the business model. Right. Yeah, this, this summer, apparently, uh, WeWork was renting more office space than any other company in America, just to give you a sense of how big it still is. I think you see that in New York, but it wouldn't be intuitive necessarily if you're outside of a big city. Yeah, that stat didn't impress me because I'm like, that's what they do. No company is, <laughs> you know, renting out office space to as many people and companies as possible. But that's WeWork's business. It does mean they're bigger than their two big competitors who are Regis and Industrious. 
Right. They did manage to grow to a much bigger size than companies that have been around much longer. It's sort of interesting because you would think that um, the post-pandemic office environment would lend itself to WeWork being successful because, you know, people are coming into the office less often. So maybe more people would want WeWork. WeWork would be more relevant. The business model would be more relevant. But because fewer people are coming into the office, the whole sector, the whole commercial office real estate sector is struggling. So the price of office space has gone down. There's lots of it available, sort of like we work and industrious and Regis, they all have lost their edge <laughs> because there's just a lot of cheap office space available and company and and the companies that lease it out have to make deals to get anyone to use it. One of the interesting things that I think changed profoundly during the pandemic is that there are two different ways of slicing up office space. And WeWork is very good at one of them and very bad at the other. Historically, what it did pre-pandemic was it would take very large chunks of offices, multiple floors, and it would break them up into tiny little mini offices. And small companies could rent a tiny office which might only have like two desks in it or you could have a you know six desk office or a 10 desk office or a 45 desk office so you could have whatever size you wanted without having to be like we need an entire floor how many floors do you want and that gave companies a lot of flexibility that actually they never really had in their past that you could you know have a nice office of your own without having to you know be in in a way that like landlords would never talk to you in the past if you didn't want a certain amount of square footage. So that kind of way of slicing up offices is what WeWork was good at. What WeWork is bad at is the new way that people want to slice up offices, which is by days. People want to be like, I want to come in Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, or I want to come in on you know Wednesdays or whatever it is. And it's really hard to set up an office such that you have an office on Wednesdays, but not on Tuesdays. In, you know, you can create some kind of a hot desk system, but WeWork hasn't really done that in terms of like, come here, we have like a monitor and a keyboard and, you know, everything you need to do your work in an office, we just, we'll let you have it on Wednesdays and you can book it on Wednesdays. Mm-hmm. That is not, a, that is not a product that I see them offering. The closest they have is come in with your laptop and sit on a couch or sit at like a communal table and find a space for yourself. But it's not the same. One other factor here, too, which is that the popularity of WeWork was partly juiced by the fact that startups were having trouble finding corporate leases for office space because they were, at at least until, uh, you know, the, I want to say the 2010s, if you wanted office space in New York, you had to sign a 10-year lease. And getting out of that lease was very complicated. So, and if you're doing a startup, even a five-year lease is onerous when you don't know whether your company is going to succeed or how you're going to scale. And I think now if you're a startup, if you're, especially if you're very small, you know, three to 10 people, you're trying to do all this stuff remotely now in a way that you just weren't pre pandemic. So I think that's knocked out a lot of their primary customers. Mm. Yeah. And those startups do want a place to meet on, you know, at certain points, they're like, let's do an offsite and have a meeting and meet up in an office. And we work, we'll, you know, rent them a conference room for a day but that is that's not a business for we work really you know that's just like an ancillary revenue stream but that's not a core business I, I haven't seen anyone be able to make that work as a core business yeah felix i was going to ask you if, if you know of any real estate companies that are 
really have adjusted their business models to the way people work now, you know, if, if that's yeah, even... I mean, I, I haven't, but I do think there is a weird gap in the market, you know, where if you could provide something genuinely office-like and allow companies to take advantage of intra-week pricing and you'd be like, if you want to come in on a Friday, it's a lot cheaper than if you want to come in on a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Then... That, I think, would be super interesting. I just haven't seen anyone sort of crack that nut. Yeah, and where startups are all have moved remote and they don't need WeWork anymore, some of the bigger, more established companies are moving to like class A buildings. Like there's, there's still demand for like the fanciest, most expensive, most prime pieces of commercial real estate. Yeah. That's where like all the action is, basically. Well, I mean, th- it's also partly because they're downsizing right and they're like if we're Mm. gonna have less space then we want the space we do have to be really really nice yeah and so the rents for the best office space are not coming down at all as far as i can see but yeah yeah, the class c office space and actually we work if you look at the places it found itself most we works were actually in those kind of class B and class C buildings. And those are the ones that are suffering the most. Yes. There's the most vacancies and the most, yeah, struggle. The struggle is real for class C. The struggle is real. (laughs) We should have a numbers round. Uh, Emily, do you have a number? Mm -hmm. Yes. My number is 26.4. That is the number of minutes in the average one-way American commute in 2022 up a little bit from the year before, but down from pre-pandemic levels. There's a nice story in the New York Times sort of analyzing this data from the census, the American Community Survey, looking at the way, speaking of WeWork and offices, looking at the way that commute has changed for people. It's not just that fewer people are commuting. It's like there's like less traffic at rush hour times, but that means people are driving faster. So that means that fatalities are up. There less people are taking public transit, but that means there are fewer trains going into the city. So it's like still not so great. And it's sort of interesting how just everything has kind of changed and rejiggered in all these interesting, weird little ways. And there's even, they mentioned like a psychological hit to anyone who's still commuting into the office or into work because they have friends and family who are, you know, at home living their best lives, going to the gym in the middle of the day. And, you know, it feels kind of bad to go in. It does make intuitive sense to me that commutes are down from pre-pandemic just by dint of the, not the end of the rush hour, but certainly the diminishment of the rush right. hour. Yeah. The, there's intraday work flexibility and you can come in at like 10.30 now and people don't really mind. And so that ability to time your commute to when it's not a peak rush hour time has really helped everyone. And it's really helped transit systems, actually, because transit systems always needed to be built to be able to accommodate two very short rushes. And then mm-hmm. for the rest of the day, they had way more capacity than they needed. And now if you can sort of spread a lot of that ridership out throughout the day, it's a lot easier for the system to accommodate it. Yeah, it's still not better somehow because when I take the Metro <laughs> North now, I mean, it's it's maybe you get a seat more often, but the trains take longer to get to the city now and there's fewer of them. Yeah, I think we can have a whole segment on the Metro North in particular because <laughs> yes, that's its own, its own dysfunctional thing. <laughs> um, but for the rest of us, yeah, better commutes. That's good. My number is 60, which is the market share of Chamberlain, which is a Chamberlain group, in the garage door market. 
you didn't realize there was a market in garage doors. Well, there is a market in garage doors, and Chamberlain owns a bunch of companies in the garage door space, like Liftmaster, Chamberlain itself, Merlin, Griffco, and altogether it controls 60% of the market, and it has now come out and basically stopped all of its customers across its whole portfolio from being able to use whatever technique they want to open their garage doors. People what? used to like buy, like there are lots of different ways of opening a garage door, different types of remote control, different apps on your phone, that kind of thing. And they're like, nope, we are going to disable all of that. And if you want to use an app to open your garage door now, you're going to have to use our app from the Wait. app store. You can't use any other app. That's infuriating because I have a LiftMaster garage door. We just bought it like one or two years ago, and I have never been able to get the app to work. Like I tried to get the app to work because the guy, you know, who sold us the garage door was like, it's really amazing. Like you could boop, boop, if the if the power's out, you can just use this app and no, 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 it's so great. And you can time yeah. it and nah. you could do it remotely, but it doesn't work. Up That's until a couple of weeks ago, Emily, what you could have done is just downloaded any one of any number of other apps and used oh. a different app to open your door. And now that. Chamberlain has disabled that because they want you to use their app because their app has ads in it. And they want you to see their ads before you open the garage door. That is infuriating on multiple levels. We need an antitrust campaign specifically for the garage door industry. Yes. They're making yes. you look at ads after you spend all that money on the garage door? Yes. How dare they? Lena Khan, get on this. There is <laughs> we, we need to crack down on big garage door. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you don't need the app is the thing though. You just press a button and the door comes up and the, they like to sell you on the the fact that like if you're away from home and you realize you've left the garage door open, you can close it remotely. So that's like the big selling point of the app, but like most people close their garage door, it's not a big deal. You can just go back to analog garage door where you yeah. push it up and pull it down. down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth, you have a number? Yeah, my number is uh, 250 and that's dollars. And for $250 a day, you can send your, if you live in New York, there's a company called Shape Up Your Pup that will take your dog hiking in upstate New York. <laughs> I, I, this is like, that's a pretty good I, price. And I really, <laughs> I really want to just quit my job and join Shake Up Your Pup. And just, I want to be that person who takes dogs for walks in the Hudson Valley for a living. Like, what an awesome job. But you have to get the dog to the Hudson Valley from the city. So you have to commute with the dog? Uh, I, no, I think they take, they commute with their dog. Oh, that's yeah, a no, great I deal. I, yeah, I, yeah, I don't want to be the person like putting the dog in the back of the van and driving it. I just no, want to be the person that. like letting it out on the trails and saying, go enjoy the air. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> this was in an article from the New York times in the, you know, usual voyeurism of rich people kind of vein about high end services that people can get in New York. But to take a person from New York city and go hiking in the Hudson Valley, I feel like would cost around the same amount of money. So it seems like a great well, deal. But if you were packing a bunch of people in the back of a van <laughs> and taking them. <laughs> right. <laughs> all all, all right, I can say right. to, to the Slate Money listeners is if you have a dog who wants to go on a hike in the Hudson Valley, let me know and let's work something out <laughs> because I would be happy to walk your dog for you. Um, on which note, I think we should probably wrap this up. Thank you to the absent Rob Copeland for coming on. Thank you very much to the very present Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada for putting this whole show together. We have Rob coming back with Slate Plus. 
we have a very exciting Slate Money travel episode coming up on Monday with the one and only Lydia Polgreen, who has traveled to more exotic and amazing places than you can possibly imagine. So yeah, it's all coming up on further Slate Monies. <laughs> 